Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 99th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. You and my friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We're the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we are joined by Johan Anderberg. Um, before I even get to introduce him, I wanted to remind all of you this is a wonderful opportunity to ask him questions. So whether you are joining us on Zoom or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, use the comment section and type in your question. We'll get to as many of them as we can. So Johan Anderberg is a Swedish journalist and a writer who has contributed to a number of Swedish publications and international media outlets, uh, including the Wall Street Journal. He recently published a book called The Herd, How Sweden Shows Its Own Path Through the Worst Pandemic in 100 Years. It narrates the improbable story of a small nation that took a startlingly different approach to fighting the pandemic. First, the government issued no restrictions, then it declined to order the wearing of masks. Um, and while the rest of the world looked on with uh, alternately incredulity, condemnation, admiration, and even envy, Sweden stood alone. Johan, welcome again. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, and now I want to mention to folks that this book has been published in Sweden. Uh, it is not yet um, published in its hard copy form in the United States, um, but the Kindle version is available. So um, I urge you all to, uh, to check it out. Um, and uh, I know there are a few advanced copies floating around. I uh, got to see Jay Bhattacharya this weekend and he was saying that he and Martin Kuldorf were sharing their, their bootleg copy and um, highly recommend it as well. So we're gonna put the link to the book uh, in all of the chat. So first, however, though, I'd love to just start with a little bit about you. Uh, this is your, your first book, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so where did you grow up? Um, how did you get into journalism and what led you to want to write this book? Sure. Um, I'm originally from the south part of Sweden, uh, the one that's really close to Denmark. So, um, and then, but I've been living in Stockholm for about 20 years, um, where I started my career as a journalist as well. I think I, uh, well, well, and then I've been working for a couple of uh, Swedish and international magazines. Um, I've been at a magazine called Focus for 10 years, which is kind of a magazine in the same mold of uh, Time Magazine or Newsweek. I, I don't know if those if Newsweek exists anymore in the US, but... <laughs> there <laughs> but are <it's>, rumors. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so, and I think it was two years ago now that I started writing this book about the pandemic, uh, which was... Basically, like my publisher and I, we decided that this was kind of the story of the of our lifetime for Sweden. That um, I I don't think I, actually I know that Sweden has never been 
in the international spotlight as much as during the last two years um, when the Swedish Foreign Department uh, made a study it showed that uh, the number of articles was like a hundred times more than it normally was about Sweden so it's kind of interesting to see how uh, the rest of the world looked on uh, while we conducted what the rest of the world saw as this experiment. Uh, okay, well, um, so the Swedish strategy has been dubbed the, the Swedish experiment by both detractors and champions. Um, and it defied the lockdowns and the mandates deployed uh, in most other countries in the world. So uh, what were the chief features of it that differentiated Sweden's approach from, um, from other countries and, and what made Sweden choose such a different path? I think the key features were that there were very few laws um, in, that the pandemic strategy was based on. It was all based, pretty much everything was based on recommendations and information to citizens. Um, but also um, a lack of uh, restrictions. Uh, like for instance, with face masks, I've only used a face mask in Sweden, maybe two or three times in total. Um, maybe for a total of like 20 minutes. And my kids have never ever worn face masks. They have never missed a day in school. And I think the biggest reason for Sweden taking this path was that they, they, they had no um, evidence that lockdowns would work. They, there was no data suggesting that such an approach would be beneficial to um, like stemming the, um, the spread of the disease. And they, also, they were also pretty sure that it would be extremely harmful to public health. Um, how many children do you have, by the way? Two, uh, six and 12 soon. Okay, uh, and you know, since this, this received a lot of criticism uh, early on, was Sweden pressured um, from, let's say the World Health Organization or neighboring countries to kind of toe the line on lockdowns and mandates? I think they were pressured, uh, but they, um, it was more like they were nudged uh, by uh, other public health professionals in other countries who were uh, criticizing them. And it's kind of funny, I, I tried to describe this in, in my book that it's such a small world, this um, epidemiological elite in Europe and also in the US, like everyone knows each other. And I think everyone was kind of surprised that uh, like in this uh, little circle that uh, so many countries uh, locked down. And mm -hmm. but what was interesting was that especially in the neighboring countries, uh, the Scandinavian public health professionals at first didn't want to lock down, but then they, defended the lockdowns quite vehemently, even though they had been quite against it at first. So there was kind of a herd mentality forming, I think. At least that's where I can uh, get from like reading all these emails between the different public health professionals. Well, uh, 
Tell us a little bit about the title of the book when you talk about the, the herd mentality. I had been um, thinking of, of the title in a different light that, you know, uh, Sweden was going to protect the vulnerable, but uh, try to get more quickly to the path where it became um, endemic and, and less people would be affected. So how did you choose that title? Well, I, I think it, it's basically just because of the um, the double the, the double meaning is kind of intentional because, as you say, um, the the herd in one way it speaks to uh, the herd immunity approach that Sweden chose, and then kind of <laughs> denied that they chose because it became so politically incorrect to talk about herd herd immunity for maybe 18 months. Now it's kind of back in vogue, I'd say. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the other part of uh, the title uh, speaks to uh, the herd mentality that the rest of the world uh, suffered under, I think. But, uh, but it's kind of interesting with the herd immunity approach because Denmark, who were, were kind of locking down and were kind of using face masks, but not nearly as much as the rest of Europe, uh, they just got tired of it uh, this winter, and then they started talking about uh, herd immunity. But th and then they coined a new word called population immunity. Just uh, just to be a little bit different, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like basically the same thing. But then they, uh, uh, like everyone in Sweden was like, "What? What are you doing? Why aren't like all, all international media coming to Denmark saying you?" are like conducting a, a terrible experiment. So um, they got yeah, well, so I, I'm gonna get a little bit later to the, to the results, but I, I am curious about uh, Sweden and its neighbors because uh, you know, many predicted that the Swedish approach would lead to disaster. That didn't happen. Sweden uh, is among six European countries with excess mortality less than 100 per 100,000. Um, the other countries, several of the other countries sharing that uh, ranking are um, Denmark, Finland, Nor Norway, and then Ireland and Switzerland. So how similar or how different were the strategies uh, pursued by other Scandinavian countries and were the results kind of roughly the same or is there anything about how the results differ that um, that can kind of uh, give us some retrospective judgment about uh, the wisdom of their differing approaches? Well, Denmark uh, and Norway, Finland, they, they, like, they, they did uh, close their schools for a while, but I believe all those countries were earlier in opening them up again. Uh, so in one way, they were like more open than most of Europe as well. But compared to Sweden, it was uh, like it was quite a big difference. Uh, and I, I don't know how, how familiar you are with like the Swedish, like the Scandinavian national characters, but it was very surprising for everyone in Scandinavia because Normally, Denmark is seen as the liberal country where there are very few laws and people are free to do pretty much what they want. And when my book was reviewed in a Danish newspaper, there was a, a, a top comment that said, it's 
it's such a shame for us that the Swedes for once turned out to be more chilled out than we were. Because in, in Denmark, Swedes are called uh, Germans dressed up as human, human beings, but we are like oh, very, wow. <laughs> very controlled and, uh, and careful people. Like everyone wears a bike helmet, even though you're, there's no law for it. And no one in Denmark uses a bike helmet. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. So the so but at the end of the day, you know, it sounds like there was some difference uh, that they uh, locked down, and even though they opened up relatively um, earlier than other European countries, but in terms of the the health outcomes, that they were more or less the same. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to deaths uh, through COVID, I mean, it, those numbers are a little bit hard to to figure out. But in general, uh, Iceland has the lowest number, and Norway has twice as many dead per capita, and Denmark has twice as many dead per capita as uh, Norway has, and Sweden has twice as many as uh, Denmark has. So, so there's like a even though all Scandinavian countries have very few deaths, that there is a big difference between them. But it's also a little bit strange to dissect this uh, this much because when when the when deaths are this low, you have to think about all the other problems in society. And should you really uh, measure Denmark and Norway against each other like that when there are so few deaths anyway? That I mean. I don't think, um, I think there were probably a number of diseases in, at least in Norway and Denmark that that produced more deaths during those years. So um, it's kind of interesting how all the media was so interested in just one disease for mm-hmm. two years. Yeah, um, well, do you, do you get in, in your book, do you get into a bit more about some of the other adverse health uh, consequences and how Sweden fared by taking this lighter touch? Yeah. Um, for instance, when you, you ask young people how they look at their future, uh, Sweden has pretty much the same result like this year from last year and the year before that. Whereas uh, young people's optimism has dropped by a lot in most European countries. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed also that uh, reports are coming out from the U.S. about uh, teen health and how how young people are feeling in general. So I, I did get some of that in the book. There was one study in uh, in Denmark that followed uh, pupils in one class, and they uh, gained uh, around twelve pounds on average during one year. Um, while uh, their school had been closed for like half a year or something like that. Um, well, I want to also encourage those who are joining us, whether you're joining us on social media or on Zoom, um, please ask your questions about Sweden. Uh, we're focusing on the Swedish experiment and Johan's book, The Herd, but uh, there's Sweden is in the news in other ways uh, recently, so um, so we'll we'll take your questions. He may or may not answer them. Um, another question that I have was about the man who pioneered uh, the Swedish approach, or at least in in part, and that is I hope I won't botch his name Anders Tegnell. Oh, perfect. Uh, 
<laughs> so he's become a bit of a, a celebrity with, I understand some Swedes uh, going as far as to get tattoos of his likeness. So uh, how much access did you have to him? Um, how accessible was he? And to what extent did his strategy uh, reflect either, you know, the consensus that you were talking about earlier in Swedish public health circles, or was it just this man with his independent vision going alone? There were actually, uh, I'd say, two men who uh, were really important here. It was Anders Tegnell, and then it's, it was his uh, mentor, Johan Giesecke. And they, they have been working together for like 20 or 30 years. And Johan Giesecke even calls Anders Tegnell his son. Wow. Uh, reciprocate by calling Giesecke his dad, but they they spoke to each other every day, uh, even before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, Tegnell brought Giesecke back to the public health authority. Uh, so their view on this, and Giesecke is one of the like alpha males of uh, European epidemiology. He's written like the textbooks and everything. And together they managed to uh, to withstand all the pressure, I think. Because in a sense, the Swedish strategy wasn't that controversial. It only became controversial after the rest of the world started locking down. So I guess a lot of bureaucrats would have just... Uh, uh, you know, to keep their job, would have done like every, everyone else. It's like, it, it's easier to be wrong without everyone else. Mm -hmm. But they, um, th they are some really, they, they are two really interesting characters. Um, Tegnell has this very, it's like, he's very knuckleheaded. And Giesig has this like aristocratic vibe. His dad was like one of the most famous uh, Swedish politicians. Uh, and he, uh, so he comes from this like uh, family of power. So he, uh, he felt it was almost as he had lived his entire life for this moment, I think. All right, well, um, I have more questions for you, but uh, I wanna get our audience involved here. So uh, let's see, um, Carolyn Breen, on Facebook asks, what role did vaccines play in Sweden? Um, I guess um, the vaccine uptake is a little bit higher than the than average in Europe. Um, there was a big debate about uh, vaccine passports. Uh, the public health against that. But then they were forced by the government to uh, uh, to put them in place. Uh, but they 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 only lasted for like five or six weeks, I think, and they didn't really make any difference either. But um, I was actually quite critical of and wrote uh, as much in a couple of newspapers, and um, I think it was that that was kind of a sad moment in <laughs> during this <laughs> during the pandemic in Sweden. I mean, you only have to use them to get into concerts uh, or like if there were like a hundred, over a hundred people there. And so I, I never even used mine, but uh, I think it was still uh, a break with Swedish tradition and with democratic traditions as well. 
Okay, um, Scott Schiff asks, did the experience of being pressured um, from being the only country who defied lockdowns, uh, did it change Sweden's view of the potential hazards of globalization? So that's a question or just maybe more specifically, you know, whenever you go through an experience like this and uh, you, you withstand pressure, I think it can just change your perspective um, on a lot of things. I think the most important thing that changed uh, in Sweden when it came to like the view of the outside world was that we re we stopped trusting uh, established foreign media the way mm. we trusted them before because there were so many reports from like the Guardian, the New York Times that were like so, that had so many factual errors that uh, I think it was kind of uh, incredible to to read and. I really urge people to find it. I think you can, if you just Google Google it, you, you'll find it. Because there, there was one report in the New York Times that uh, that was found to have, I think, fifteen or sixteen factual errors about Sweden, and easy ones as well. That, that like any high school student in Sweden knows about how the Swedish political system works. Fascinating. Uh, well, and then what about? the Swedish press. I mean, you know, here in the United States uh, during 2020, the media was just um, mercilessly criticizing everything that uh, President Trump did. And then of course, you know, maybe the, the state that's been one of the more open ones here in the United States is Florida. And, uh, you know, they just talked about DeSantis's death cult. So it uh, was pretty adversarial here at home to anyone, to any politicians that um, pursued a more open path or a more kind of a measured trade-off uh, cognizant path. How, how did the Swedish press as a member of the press yourself, how did they react? It was a pretty good debate for the first couple of months where we were like yeah, weighing pros and cons and it was a pretty harsh debate. Mm -hmm. um, but that was kind of understandable because um, a lot of things were at stake. And at this time, people thought that uh, many more Swedes would, would die from the virus eventually. There, there were reports from universities saying that 100,000 people would, would die in Sweden in just a couple of months time. And the actual result ended up being 6,000. Uh, but no one could know that at the time. So I, I totally understand why people were scared and mm -hmm. uh, wanted changes. And so, so, so there, there was a good debate for a couple of months. But then slowly uh, the Swedish press uh, became more pro-lockdown. Mm -hmm. and, and during the press conferences, uh, Politicians and public health authority uh, personnel were always asked why more wasn't being done and so on. And I think a lot of uh, the foreign criticisms were trickled in because Swedish media executives are kind of a part of, uh, you know, like an uh, international intellectual community where they, you know, they, they read the New York Times online. And, I mean, I do too still, <laughs> and the Wall Street Journal. But uh, I mean, because uh, you, you have to read those newspapers to get get a sense of what's going on in the world. And 
Um, so, um, but but I've been more cognizant of, uh, I guess, uh, the underlying assumptions in the reporting mm-hmm. uh, two years ago. All right, uh, from Instagram, Iron T asks, has the economic damage of lockdowns in other countries affected things in Sweden? Yeah, so I definitely. Guess, you know, supply chains and all of yeah. these. Yeah, Sweden is an extremely export-driven economy. Like almost all our GDP comes from exporting stuff, like from Spotify to Volvo and all that. So uh, we were kind of uh, damaged as well here in Sweden. But consumer spending held up and the service sector was uh, was not as badly hit as, as uh, the export, the industry. So... Um, oh. It, it could have been much worse. Um, I'm actually like skiing now, and like uh, on the Norwegian side of the mountains, everything was closed. So all these like small towns were like really depending, like resorts. Uh, they they actually had their like best year ever. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> well, other people no, were coming to Sweden. What? what? Because other people from other Scandinavian countries were coming to Sweden to ski or to vacation. Yeah, and that was like the like the ridiculous thing that there were so many Europeans coming to Sweden to to party and to um, so uh, and even the Norwegians came out. So it it didn't make any sense at all with these uh, lockdowns over there. Yeah. Well, we had a similar phenomenon here in the United States um, that people from New York and New Jersey, two states that had some of the uh, the harshest lockdowns and the worst incidentally uh, health outcomes they were constantly going to florida they were criticizing florida they're killing everybody in florida and the first thing they would do is they would go to uh, to florida so uh that maybe uh answers one of the other questions that i have here um from facebook echo wind is asking were the borders closed so how did sweden handle international trade and tourism yeah, borders were closed uh, here and there, like all the time. It's like impossible to keep track. Oh, on. You, you don't have open borders. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, well, there, there, there was a time when uh, when we had uh, between eight and nine, and I think two years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, but the sad thing was that uh, borders in Scandinavia have been open for for so long, but that has also uh, uh, stopped. It actually stopped a little bit with the migration uh, crisis in 2015. But uh, that has been a big problem, especially in the South of Sweden. But um, yeah, what was the question again about the borders? Uh, yeah, whether the borders were like, you know, a lot of countries, the United States, we, you know, uh, said that we're not gonna accept flights from these countries and um, you know, other, other countries just said uh, they really kind of closed themselves off from, from the world um, like Australia. So, uh, you know, a lot of things were going on as normal in Sweden. The schools were not interrupted, you know, the restaurants, um, events were not interrupted. 
you know, religious um, organizations and, and uh, commemorations weren't interrupted, but uh, did you also continue the pre-pandemic kind of uh, border and travel policies or were there restrictions on travel and borders? There were no restrictions uh, within uh, within Sweden. There was only like a recommendation to not uh, mm -hmm. right. more than two hours by car. Um, and uh, so the, there's actually a, a part of the constitution that says it's forbidden to restrict movement within the country. Uh, so I think that helped a lot. Uh, and also Sweden was pretty... Um, pretty late in uh, closing borders. I, I think they closed it towards Denmark for a while, but they, I think that was just out of political spite to yeah. just show, uh, now you got a virus and you close it for us. So now we're going to retaliate. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it was just a very strange, uh, okay. strange. Um, so I gather from uh, some of your writings that this approach to the coronavirus pandemic uh, was different than previous Swedish uh, public health approaches to, to other crises. So was this a question of the pendulum swinging? You know, how, how did Sweden's approach to, uh, to the coronavirus differ from its previous approach to other public health crises? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, historically, Sweden has had a very tough stance on uh, epidemics and pandemics. And that the Germans with... dressed up as Swedes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think it really peaked in the 1980s. And I know the story in the US is that uh, government acted too soon uh, when it came to AIDS. But here in Sweden, the, the history is like the complete opposite. That the, gen the general view is that uh, authorities did way too much and put people, uh, put infected people in prisons and like special prisons and stuff. And but I think the reason that could go on was that um, the people who were infected by AIDS were mostly immigrants coming from Africa and uh, homosexual men that no one liked back then. So there was like never any public pressure to, to end the regime. But, but afterwards, it's, it's been seen in, in a very bad light. So, so some historians, like especially one historian that sits next to me at, at my office, uh, he, he has this theory that, uh, that the pendulum is one. Um, but I, I think the main reason for Sweden taking this path is that it, it was the scientifically sensitive, uh, the, the, it was the scientific route uh, and the, the people at the helm were strong enough to uphold it. That's like the main um, main explanation, I think. And there's also one other interesting little quirk in the Swedish constitution that says that all Swedish authorities are independent of the government. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's almost like a, an American court that can't be swayed by a politician so some foreigners think this is uh, really strange like if, if you're the minister of head that's uh, head, uh, the head of the police you still can't tell the police what to prioritize 
you have to like write a special paper every year and it has to go through like this process so that also made the authorities less susceptible to political pressure and it also made made it easier for the politicians because they could say yeah it's it's not our table we it's their choice okay so it gave them a little bit of uh, cover or wiggle room yeah. to say that we have uh, kind of a decentralized approach and, and people are, we're making recommendations, but people are doing what's best for their locality. Yeah, and, uh, and also the Swedish government office is really, really tiny compared to other countries. Mm -hmm. like all, all the expertise is, is uh, delegated to the authorities. And uh, to, so there's like no one <laughs> With, with a scientific degree in the government agency that can uh, second guess uh, the experts at uh, all the different authorities. All right. Um, so you wrote an article recently in Unheard, uh, which we're going to put into the chat boxes um, called Sweden's Inconvenient COVID Victory. In what ways have the results of the Swedish strategy proved inconvenient for those who were once its biggest critics? Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of Karl Popper, uh, the scientific uh, theory, theorist. Um, and he has this idea of like, if you have, if you want, if a theory is scientific, it has to, be able to be falsified and uh, if you if you made if you had the assumption that sweden conducted a dangerous experiment then you'd want to know the results um, so uh, i think it's strange that all these american and british uh, and german uh, magazines and newspapers wrote all these articles and never came back to see how it actually ended because mm -hmm. I think that the Swedes, and especially John Gieseke, when he was like touring all the international media, a thing he said was that, let's come back in a year or in two years time, and you'll see that eventually uh, deaths uh, all around the world will be pretty much the same. Mm. He, didn't have, like, he didn't get that completely right. I, he, actually, Sweden uh, ended up uh, lower than he had thought. So... I think it's a bit dishonest, actually, for uh, for uh, international some international media publications to be so outspoken about something and then not uh, go back. Not follow, follow up, right? I'm sure they would have followed up if uh, if their their criticism um, had been borne out, but perhaps yeah. it's inconvenient because um, to acknowledge what happened. Uh, is to acknowledge that they were wrong in um, saying that this was going to be a, a disaster. And um, so nobody likes to admit that they were wrong, uh, particularly not the experts and, and the media. Uh, yeah. All right, some more questions from our audience. Um, James the Thinker on Instagram is asking about the population density in Sweden. Uh, did that help to reduce the spread? Mm, I mean, if you compare it to, to England, uh, I think it did 
because uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, really dense areas have been hit uh, harder than uh, mm -hmm. uh, than uh, yeah the opposite. But mm -hmm. Sweden is actually quite densely populated where people live. Like Stockholm is a very dense city, as is Gothenburg, as is Malmo. So Sweden is kind of like uh, Canada. Like it's a very big country, but people are like crowded in, in the cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Ian Brooks on Facebook asks, what are your thoughts on the COVID camps that Australia built? I mean, it, it just shows how, how bad it can get when you decide on something and you can't like back out from it. And I, I think, I think, or I hope this will go down in history as, as, as a really weird thing that 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 democracy did because, I mean, we've seen this kind of behavior from uh, dictatorships for uh, centuries. But what is really striking about this is like Australia is a real democracy, and still it happened there. So I think that, and that has made me quite uh, concerned actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, maybe it's too early to tell. But what do you think the the lessons learned will be. Uh, do you do you think that people will say, "Well, gosh, you know, um, we want to reduce excess mortality from COVID, and you know, or from the next pandemic, and from from other uh, adverse health impacts?" Uh, we know that. Um, uh, isolating people, locking them down. Uh, we know that destroying jobs, destroying an economy, that that those also have, have bad impacts. And do you think people will be more likely to think twice? Or do you think that people will say either that they never want to admit that they made mistakes or that they enjoy having um, so much power to, to, to tell the population what to do? I think there will be a reckoning eventually. And I think it will happen when one of the major American or British uh, media outlets or journalists decide to really go through it. Um, and uh, you, you can just see the impact that th there's this uh, journalist on, in the New York Times, uh, David Leonhardt, that had been uh, a bit more nuanced uh, in covering the, the pandemic. And it has had such a great uh, impact already, I think. And I mean, w once the Michael Lewis's or the Malcolm Gladwell's, or like so someone like that, really writes this story in the US, um, you know, pretty much the way I did in Sweden, then it, mm -hmm. uh, I, then I think uh, people would change, change their minds. Because all these uh, people who were pro lockdown, I think. They are kind of few. Like most people were just like going along and didn't think too much about it, I think. Um, if you haven't been on the record, it's easier to change your mind, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, you know, there were mistakes, I'm sure, in Sweden. Um, and the, uh, the approach was not without its uh, reversals. So, Maybe tell us a little bit about what what happened and what uh, looking back, if 
if Tegnell or um, his his mentor were to look back and say, you know, these are the things we got right. Were there were there things that they got wrong? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the one thing they did get wrong uh, was uh, there was early on when they trusted the Chinese data. Mm, uh, interesting. For for way too long. But, but someone told me, like someone who came to one of my book readings uh, told me that maybe that was uh, fortuitous because since they trusted the Chinese data and thought that the virus wasn't going to come to Sweden for so long, it ended up coming to Sweden. Uh, and it, if, if Sweden had had like an Australian or maybe Norwegian situation with uh, like no virus at all, maybe they would have been more tempted to lock down. But, but now they're like, ah, it's already here. Let's, uh, let's just let it rip. So, mm-hmm. so maybe, maybe it was a good thing, actually. And another thing they got wrong was they uh, thought the vaccine would take four to six years. Uh, and I believe it took like eight or nine months. Mm-hmm. But that, that was such an amazing scientific breakthrough. But, but, uh, but, but that also factored into their calculations, I think, because uh, lockdowns for four years is even more inconceivable than lockdowns for half a year. So maybe that was also lucky that they thought the vaccine would they, take long. Yeah, that they, they kind of mi- miscalculated on that because people say, oh, well, two years of, you know, making toddlers wear masks and, uh, you know, harming our businesses, we can live with that. But uh, if you think it's longer, you have to say, you know, no, we're going to have to figure out another strategy from the get go. Well, wasn't it just two weeks? It was supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) Two weeks uh, and two years and a month later, here we are. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Woody Cohen Cochin on Twitter is asking, um, is there a particular group or groups that really were the most specifically responsible for the devastations of the lockdowns? So, you know, was it the media that was scaring people and then people were pressuring governments for these, you know, restrictions? Was it public health authorities that were kind of beguiled by a new untried um, strategy of of zero COVID? So, um, you know, who who were the ones that were really most responsible? I mean, I I, I kind of want to say, uh, Imperial College and other imp- public health uh, like mm-hmm. epidemiologists who who uh, had this like flawed science guiding them, but I, I think it's uh, it has to be the media because mm-hmm. if, if you as a journalist you encounter people all the time who 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 want to do this and that because they are like so focused on their area of expertise they they want to have like um, a certain kind of um, they, they want to force uh, kids to wear all kinds of protections and because they they wrote their PhD thesis on this kind of injury among kids and and as a journalist you have to take a step back and like do the cost benefit analysis and you have to see w- w- what other things could this lead to and mm-hmm. 
there are so many people who want to write laws for everything too. And like, for instance, uh, every time I'm out talking about this, there's always some, someone who says like, but are you against uh, seatbelts as well? Like, no, uh, or seatbelt laws. But, but then I always ask them like, why do you use a seatbelt? Is it because it's a law? Or do you think it's a good thing to wear that <laughs> easy to wear as well? I mean, I, I wear a seatbelt because I think the police is going to find me a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, so that also raises the the question of uh, masks. So there were no mask mandates, but people weren't wearing the masks, and you weren't masking your kids, and you, you know, worn masks for all of you know, 20 or 40 minutes over the past two years. So uh, again, was it, um, you just, you looked at the data and you weren't buying it or, or uh, were the public health authorities saying, wear masks, don't wear masks? Were you, yeah. were you deciding also that maybe they work, but um, you know, my child is two years old and I'm at very low risk or, did you get it early on? Did you get natural immunity? Uh, I I don't know if I've had it actually because uh, I have I've only taken the test uh, once mm -hmm. <laughs> when I went to Iceland with my daughter. Uh, so I've been I've been ill a couple of times. Maybe it was COVID. Uh, I don't know. But with masks, I think I, th I think it could help if you really know how to use it. Uh, but when you think of how many people that have gotten COVID around the world, what well, does it just, uh, it could probably prolong um, the time before you get it. But it's pretty fair to say that you are gonna get it eventually. So um, when you weigh that against uh, the massive inconvenience it is, especially for kids to, to wear a mask, I think it doesn't make sense at all. Mm -hmm. and, and that was what data said also. Like if you read these emails between the Swedish scientists and some foreign, it's pretty obvious that they think it was bullshit. So, mm -hmm. uh, but, but then they recommended it in subways for two hours a day in Sweden anyway, and no one wore them anyway. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's always been very, very rare to see people with masks in Sweden. And it, it looks like it, I mean, how, you know, in the United States, there, it's very politically divided and, and polarized and the pandemic and then the responses to the pandemic kind of fell into that political mix. Um, is there that same level of heated uh, political divide in Sweden and um, did, did the pandemic and the um, responses or lack of responses in Sweden's case, did that play into it? Um, it, it was kind of interesting because we happened to have like a social democratic government at the time. So I guess if it had been a right-wing government, um, Interesting. Mm -hmm. the left would have been more critical and they would have had like the case of saying like you sacrifice uh, people's lives for the economy but mm -hmm. now not government so the first thing that uh, the liberal party like the, the moderates that's like the center-right party 
the first thing they wanted to do, they, they, wrote, they wrote an office saying that Sweden should have an exit plan. <laughs> that was like two weeks in. So um, they had a difficult time backtracking from that. And there have been like bouts of uh, like the nationals already had like a couple of weeks where they thought they were going to be able to uh, uh, to get some traction. And, but it never really became a political debate. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Op- but, but you're saying that if... if- and the other party had been in power, that you think that it would have gone differently, differently possibly. Yeah, I think so, because then... Uh, well, it would have been the same response, right? I mean, who knows what Tegnell and Giuseppe, yeah. what his, their politics are. You know, yeah. Like, yeah, funny thing is that I think one is really left-wing and one is really right-wing, but that's just like my guess. So I thought, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said that. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the only thing that became a political issue was uh, the testing, because uh, the public health authority thought testing was kind of useless. And but then uh, there was like some political pressure to do it. So, um, but they never really got any tests. And it is kind of useless to test people like that if you had decided to let it rip anyway. So. Um, I never really, it never really fit into the strategy. So it, it was no wonder they didn't really care about it. And to, I think all this testing in the US and the rest of the world has probably been pretty meaningless as well. So uh, just picking up on something you said just then. So critics would have said that, uh, well, Sweden has decided to let it rip. And, uh, you know, with like the Great Barrington Declaration, they would say, no, we're not, you know, promoting letting it rip, we're promoting focused protection. But I mean, in reality, is that what Sweden did? Did they take special cases to say, you know, um, let's prioritize vaccines for the elderly and uh, the elderly should not go out and should wear masks all the time? Uh, Or did they just say, you know, let it rip. I, I think uh, this Tegna and the others have been a little bit dishonest when it comes to uh, like what the actual strategy was. Because mm-hmm. I, I think uh, it's pretty fair to say uh, that they kind of let it rip. They, they had this plan to protect the elderly, but that is kind of impossible to do. And, right. But they did give the vaccine to the elderly at first. first. And, yeah, and, and that works pretty well, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, the Swedish nursing home, nursing homes have been a disaster for, for a long time, as it probably is in a lot of countries, unfortunately. Yeah, well, they certainly but, were in, the, in um, New York and New Jersey uh, because the governors in those states made the decision that they would house overflow COVID patients of all ages in nursing homes. And that you know, essentially wiped out. Yeah, that doesn't sound very thought through. Yeah, <laughs> no. Um, so I have to ask you though, uh, you know, is there something about the, we, we've talked a little bit about the political context, we've talked about sort of, you know, possible pendulum swing, we've talked about the public health leadership, um, 
is there something special about the Swedish culture or the Swedish character? I mean, you know, if, if, if they are, as the Danes call them, the uh, Germans dressed up as Swedes, what, what is there, is it, is there something that helped them to kind of be more measured or more moderate and resist the kind of panic and hysteria that uh, gripped and still, still grips other countries? I think um, at least this is what the latest uh, historic uh, historian researchers are are saying about Sweden is that there's this uh, really strong individualist streak in Sweden, and that is something that foreigners don't always pick up. Uh, like because people think we we elect these like social democrats all the time, but to most Swedes, uh, social democrats are. They, they guarantee uh, some freedoms we value a lot. And, and if you compare it to the US, in, in the US, um, I guess the smallest political entity is the family, whereas here is the individual. So that's why free tuition is such an important thing to, for Swedish liberty, because we are so free that we don't even want to be dependent on our families. That, that's mm. how Swedish uh, liberty, and I, I think there's uh, uh, a lot to that. And also, Swedish uh, the Swedish society is like way way more liberalized than the people think. Almost all markets are totally free market, and uh, it's. Uh, I, I know some people ha have have read, uh, written about this in National Review and so on, but uh, I, I think. Uh, people people still think it's like a small version of France, whereas it's it's more like like an American state in some sense. Yeah, well, uh, previous guests that I've had on this show, um, Johan Norberg, he had yeah. a documentary, Sweden, Lessons for America. And he showed that Americans don't uh, really know much about Sweden and that um, uh, Sweden is, is, is really not socialist, it's far more capitalistic, and um, it shouldn't be used as an example of sort of uh, the public means of production, um, that it, it certainly has aspects of a generous welfare state, but um, uh, it's, it's interesting. So um, we're just about running out of time. A uh, couple of last questions. What is Tegnell's current status. Um, there were reports that he resigned as uh, Sweden's chief epidemiologist to take a role at the World Health Organization. Is that the case? And if so, what does it represent? Yeah, that was the news coming out. But I, I don't know, lately it's uh, maybe he's not going to the WHO after all. So I, I'm, I don't know at all what happened there, but um, when it comes to the WHO, my understanding is that it's kind of like the UN, but uh, <laughs> it's not always. I mean, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't read too much into that. It's like a lot of political uh, maneuvering and stuff like that. So it's kind of okay. like being on the Human Rights Council. And uh, well, but, I, I hope that you know it would be a case that he would influence the World Health Organization and not that the World Health Organization would co-opt him 
and you know not let something like this independent um, yeah it's actually uh, I came across some interesting uh, emails uh, like with because Gisig was part of the WHO uh, group that handled this pandemic and uh, he he wrote like some emails to the Swedes uh, gossiping about uh, what the WHO really thought and how it was all politics and it was kind of so I, I always laugh a little bit when I hear like people ref, uh, referencing the WHO as this uh, oracle when you know it's just like you know like FIFA or IOC or any kind of international organization that has like a million different. Um, uh, schemers, you know, bureaucrats. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I suppose I'm a little bit relieved to hear that that they're, uh, you know, not terribly competent enough to be enacting some of these um, schemes. So you you wrote the book, published it. Uh, I mean, so si how much time has passed since it was published in Sweden? Uh, a little less than a year. Okay, so is there anything that happened in that you know almost year since the book uh, was published that you would have liked to have been included? Um, and is there another book on the subject in in your horizon? I, I think it I, it covers pretty much everything because. Um, when I published it, everyone in Sweden who wanted to I got the vaccine, and uh, as, as Sweden has like ended the pandemic quite a long time ago, like no one in Sweden has talked about it for ages. It feels like wow. There was this Corona Commission uh, coming out, and it felt like no one cared about it at all. It was a bad time before them because it happened while Russia invaded Ukraine, but. Mm -hmm. It was kind of interesting to see how people had uh, moved on. Interesting. Well, speaking of moving on, what is going to be next for you? Uh, well, I'm kind of thinking of a new book that, that um, uh, maybe I, I shouldn't tell you about, but it has to do with like yeah, the complexity that that how people underestimate the complexities of society and how, how it's easy to, to think of uh, simple or fast solutions to, uh, to, to societal problems. So it's kind of in the vein of this. So, since so many people have appreciated like the, the tone in this book, it feels like there's a, a case for, uh, for uh, trusting people and, and not uh, a, a, a new way to write something anti-authoritarian, I think. All right. Well, we will be watching. Uh, you are on Twitter at uh, Johan Anderberg. So we will follow you there. Any place else that we should be following or signing up for in terms of um, keeping track of you and your next book? No, I think Twitter is the only... I try to stay out of Instagram. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, wonderful. It is uh, midnight there. Um, so thank you again very much for staying up to speak with us. Uh, thank you for writing this book, for having it translated into English. And uh, a big thank you from 
the United States and the rest of us to Sweden for, for being brave and measured and uh, independent and showing, uh, showing us another, another path. Thanks for having me.